Turn with me in your copies of God's Word to Romans chapter 9. And as you do so, I'll tell you a story about Robert Murray McShane. McShane was passing out evangelistic tracts near his church in Dundee, Scotland, and he saw a woman approaching, a very well-dressed, older woman that he hadn't seen before in that neighborhood, and she came up to him and he handed her one of these evangelistic tracts. She looked at the tract, looked at the young preacher, and said, Sir, you must not know who I am. McShane responded in his gentle pastoral way, Madam, there is a coming day of judgment, and on that day it will not make any difference who you are. And yet that was really the Apostle Paul's dilemma as he writes the Roman letter. Because for a thousand years plus centuries, it had seemed very much to matter who you were. His own people, the Jews, had known that God had made a covenant relationship with them in this incredibly special manner. And they knew they were privileged to be in that covenant with God. On the other hand, the the Gentiles, that means everybody who wasn't a Jew, well, they were not in covenant with God, at least not a covenant of grace. And if they were to come to God in adoration and worship, they would have to come, as it were, through Israel, through Jerusalem, through the temple, through the sacrifices, even becoming Jewish, which some did. But at the time that the letter to the Romans was written, the first century church, and especially Paul himself, were turning that old paradigm on its head. As the apostles' ministry to the Jews was largely being rejected by the ancient covenant people. But then the ministry to the Gentiles was exploding with success. Which in turn, though it was the latter part was wonderful, it raised all kinds of issues. All kinds of issues about the nature of that old first covenant with Israel and even God's faithfulness to it. So those are the questions that we're going to continue to deal with in these several chapters in Romans that focus on this issue especially. So I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 9, and I'm going to be beginning tonight with verse 30, but I'll be concluding in the 10th chapter after the 4th verse. So give your full attention now to the reading of God's holy word. And if you're following along in a pew Bible, you'll find this on page 946. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. 
Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father, we pray after this evening that no one here would be ignorant regarding the righteousness of God and that you, our Lord, command us to submit to your righteousness because you are our commanding king. You do not save us, Lord, as a social worker or a therapist or one who merely gives good advice. But you command us to submit to the glory of your grace in Jesus Christ. Help us to do that tonight, we pray, for his sake. Amen. You know, Israel was like a man who only thought about fishing. His father and grandfather had taught him about the fishing life and his family's rich, multi-generational fishing heritage. And now, this man insists on fishing above all else. He buys fishing gear, and he has a sleek fishing boat. He keeps his fishing license up up to date. He goes out early in the morning on the lake to fish, and he really works at it all day long. He doesn't even stop for lunch, but fishes straight on through until the evening sun finally sets. And yet, he catches not one fish, has not one bite. Still, he convinces himself he's a true fisherman because he's fished so very hard and he's used all the right lures and techniques his father's, his grandfather had taught him. He was a zealous man for fishing. Meanwhile, the Gentiles are not interested in fishing at all. They're out on the lake floating around in a ski boat trying to get a nice tan, and then they're going to go back in that evening to town to party with other people like themselves at the Gentile Gentleman's Club. People who never think about fishing wouldn't begin to know how to do it and don't really care about it. But while the Gentile sunbathers are out on the lake, floating in the lake, all of a sudden, fish start jumping into their boat. One after another, big and small, different kinds. Here they come, throwing themselves onto the Gentile boat. So the astonished Gentile revelers drive the boat back to the dock and unload their their catch and then have this huge fish fry that night at the club and have a grand time. Well, that that story doesn't exactly seem fair, does it? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Paul says the Gentiles got what they didn't go after, while the Israelites did not get what they pursued with great zeal. 
Are God's ways unjust? In John Calvin's comments on this passage, you can almost hear Calvin struggling to get past the apparent absurdity of all of this. He says, nothing appeared more unreasonable or less befitting than that the Gentiles, having no concern for righteousness, listen to this phrase, rolled themselves in the lasciviousness of their flesh, that they should be called to partake of salvation and to obtain righteousness, and that on the other hand, the Jews who assiduously labored in the works of the law should be excluded from the reward of righteousness. And of course, as you now obviously know, it wasn't fish they were after. It was something profoundly more important. It wasn't fish that the Gentiles attained without trying. No, it was something infinitely more important. It was righteousness. And so we need to define righteousness. This is a a critically important word in the Roman epistle. Thirty-three times the apostle uses the term righteousness in Romans. If you can understand the issues that revolve around righteousness, then you can comprehend the heart of Romans and really much of Christianity itself. Now, righteousness can be thought of as the opposite of sin. Righteousness obviously contains the word right. It is rightness. Righteousness is rightness in two ways at one time. First, rightness in moral character and actions, and secondly, rightness in relationships. And those two kinds of rightness, and I'm speaking of as they're defined by God now, those things are deeply interrelated. You all know that before the fall of of Adam in sin, both Adam and Eve had a cordial relationship to God and, and with each other. And they had rightness as well in their thoughts and in all their actions. When their thoughts and actions were no longer right, their relationship to the Lord was no longer right at all, and they hid from him. Now here's the key. We tend to assume that the breach in the relationship that we have with our Creator can be fixed can be made right by correcting our bad actions and bad thoughts. I mean, it would seem to make some sense, wouldn't it? Since the breach in the relationship happened due to our sinful actions, if we just correct those actions, surely the breach will be healed. But you see, that's hopelessly naive. It contains actually wicked assumptions about the nature of this breach, the nature of our God, and our own nature, as we'll come to see. See, here's the key. The the fact is the relationship has to be healed first, and purely through grace. But a grace which also upholds God's righteousness and just nature as he does it. You know, he can't simply say, well, all right, I'll overlook it. It's not in his nature. The truth is this. The way back into the Garden of Eden is not the way that we came out of Eden. 
The Bible says that a flaming, turning sword guarded the way back in to blessedness and paradise. Our sin had broken the relationship, but here's the key. Our obedience cannot mend it. This this way of healing the breach that Paul is proclaiming, this redemption in Christ, is by faith, he says. That is, it is a, a work of grace that God, the offended party in the relationship, does for the offender. It is, as the Apostle says here in verse 30 in our reading, it is a righteousness that is by faith. And I don't want you to go wrong here. Paul, Paul, in saying that it is righteousness by faith, is not saying that human faith is itself a good or a viable substitute for what we really need. No, no. Uh, faith itself has none of that. It's not that faith in itself pays the, the debt that we owe to sin. Faith is not a moral counterweight to our sin and its consequences. And faith itself does not regenerate us, doesn't give us rebirth in God. Our regeneration, and when I say that word, I mean our permanent spiritual awakening. You see, you should be woke. Our permanent spiritual awakening is how Christians would refer to true awakened states, um, regeneration, that comes, that comes before we have faith. It is a sovereign work of the Holy Spirit in our dead-to-God hearts, and it quickens us to God. It enables real faith to begin. Now, Calvin made just that same point in his commentary on these verses. He says, if anyone imagines that they were justified because they had, by faith, obtained the spirit of regeneration, he departs from the meaning of Paul. For it would not indeed have been true that the Gentiles obtain what they did not seek unless God had freely embraced them while they were straying and wandering. So you see, it's not that people dead in their sins uh, exert some innate faith within them, and then they are loved by God, and then they are born anew. No, no. They are loved by God and born again. And that very work of God in them then produces faith in his promises. So faith itself is a fruit or a gift of that regeneration. It is all gratuitous. It's a sheer gift. It really is the case, in a sense, you see, that the fish jumped in the boat. It's that astonishing. It's that free. Again, the question is, why did the Jews who so pursued salvation, or we might say righteousness, not attain it, while the Gentiles did attain it, though they weren't pursuing it? That's the question in Paul's mind when he asks why in verse 32, and then he answers it immediately, because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. Instead of trusting in what God 
had done for them, the Christ-rejecting Jews trusted in what they were doing for God. And so in these sentences, the word works and law really go together. They, they serve the same function. The Jews were pursuing a law that would lead to righteousness. Verse 31, they were seeking a righteousness based on works. Verse 32, essentially the same thing. This is the root cause of Jewish rejectionism of the gospel. Of course, it is not that good works or law-keeping are bad in themselves. They are Blessed and wonderful things. We heard a, a sermon this morning about the, the benefits, the blessedness of obeying the fourth commandment. But salvation, our recovery of righteousness in its initial and principal form, which we would say are, is justification, cannot come from those things performed by us, even if we were actually capable of doing them in a perfect and meritorious manner. I mean, the gulf between us and our Creator is simply too great. But God has made a way. He has made a way, as we see in the next verses here. In the next two verses, Paul draws on uh, two quotations from the prophet Isaiah, but they're from different places in Isaiah. So Paul hybridizes them. He combines these two things, brings them together to make a powerful point about how God used our sin to establish his salvation of us. Look at the last half of verse 32 and verse 33 as well. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled, here's the verses that are coming from Isaiah, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, James Montgomery Boyce, whose hymn we sung earlier today, uh, Dr. Boyce said there are actually four stones of stumbling in the gospel. He thinks there are four. I actually think there are five because he didn't include the exclusive claim of the gospel to be the way and the truth and the way to God, not simply a way. But let's, let's look at his four. The first one, the deity of Jesus Christ. The deity of Christ. The second one, the humanity and humble estate, including the cross of Christ. The third one, that the gospel must be received by faith rather than earned by works. And the fourth one, that salvation is according to God's election and calling. Now, those last two issues are what Paul is dealing with in this section of Romans. But when it comes to the Jews, I think he's especially thinking of number three, that the gospel must be received by faith and not by works. And you know, really, that's still the largest issue for many people today with the gospel. It is what makes our faith, as Isaiah termed it, a rock of offense. 
I mean, think about it. We, we live in a DIY culture, don't we? A do-it-yourself culture. If you have a, a, something broken in your home, you can go to Home Depot or to Lowe's. There's a tool for you. There's a, a, a glue for you. There's a tool. There's some way for you to find resolution to your problem. If you have a tax debt, there's a company uh, that you can go to which will help you resolve the tax debt. If you and your spouse have troubles in your marriage, you can go actually online. I don't really recommend that, but you can go online to a counselor who will give you marriage counseling and you can mend your relationship. But you see, this breach with God is way beyond all such self-improvement uh, do-it-yourself jobs and capacities. It is not a DIY project. How can we be so sure that Paul has this faith and works aspect in mind when he mentions the stone of stumbling? How do I know it's that one among the four works that were mentioned, the four stumbling stones? Well, Paul has already, as I said, talked about faith and works. And then he also, if you'll look down to verse 3 in the 10th chapter, he's speaking of the Jews who rejected the Savior. And he says, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, there it is, they did not submit to God's righteousness. They sought to establish their own righteousness through their own works and their religious zeal. This issue goes back to what Paul dealt with in the fourth chapter of Romans, that salvation from Abraham on was by faith and not by human striving. But you see, the contrast or the polar opposite to establishing your own righteousness is not doing nothing. It's not doing nothing. No, it's believing in him. As Isaiah quotes in verse 33, whoever believes in him, in Christ, will not be put to shame. See, when we try to establish our own righteousness to make things right with God again, there's new sin in that very effort to do it. We're only making things worse. We've underestimated the the sinfulness of our sin and the perfection and glory of God's moral purity. So I, I want you to understand that works righteousness isn't just ineffective. It blasphemes God. It breaks the third commandment. When we look to ourselves as the answer, even if maybe just 1% of it is, is something we do or we perform, then we have rejected both God's diagnosis of our true condition and our sin, and we've rejected his sovereign kindness to us in his suffering Redeemer. In doing so, we add new sin to our sin debt. I hope you see how All lines of truth and redemption lead straight to our glorious Lord, Jesus Christ. 
Paul's use of Isaiah's stumbling stone language to describe Christ brings to mind what arguably is the greatest text in the Bible about this this subject, Peter's use of this same imagery in 1 Peter 2, 4 through 8. Maybe you would turn to that uh, in your New Testaments. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 8. So Peter writes, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And so I want you to see that the offensiveness of Jesus and the glory of Jesus are so deeply related. God loves the offensiveness of his son because it reveals our offense, humanity's offense at Christ reveals the depth of man's depravity and the full glory of the grace that was given to save men and women and boys and girls from their depravity. I mean, it humbles man, and that helps us, and it glorifies God at the same time. So in exalting his son and his cross, God has made the stumbling stone into a cornerstone of redemption. In another uh, series of texts that deal with this stumbling stone imagery, he's called the capstone. So cornerstone, capstone, keystone, you get the picture. You know, there's an ancient rabbinical story that may lie behind these images in the Old and New Testaments of the stumbling stone and the cornerstone or capstone language. It is said that during the building of the great temple, Solomon's temple, the stones for the temple were hewn to spec at a quarry well well far away from the temple. And so they were cut over there and brought to the temple site and then used to build the temple. And As they did so, uh, the quarrymen brought in a stone that was a little different. And they said, well, this doesn't quite fit. And so they moved it offside over into the tall grass, so to speak. And they really forgot about that stone as they continued to build the temple. And, And they continued to use those stones from the quarry. Well, they they finally came right up to the end, and they had one last stone, the keystone, the cornerstone, to put in the great temple. But they had no stones left, so they communicated to the workers in the quarry and said, make us one more. And they said, we've made all that you need. You have enough. 
And then they remembered the stone that was rejected, the one in the tall grass, so to speak. And they went and got that same stone that had been rejected, brought it in, and it fit perfectly as the cornerstone or the keystone or the capstone to the temple. The stone the builders rejection rejected had become the cornerstone. Now, by now I suspect you've noticed in my, my sermon title tonight that the word submit is in capital letters. It's in capital letters as well as double question marks. Submit to righteousness? That's what Paul said the Jews had not done. They had not submitted to God's way of restoring our righteousness, which is found in his righteousness. See, the Jews thought that the Gentiles had to come up to Israel's standard to be saved, when actually the Jews had to go down to the level of the Gentiles to be saved, down to the foot of the cross, down where all our sinful nature and God's holy nature are fully acknowledged. For as Paul has already said in chapter 3, for there is no difference, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But still, that language of submitting, submitting to God's righteousness is striking. And when I say striking, I mean it's like you've been struck. It's jarring. We must submit to God's righteousness. You know, we tend to think that coming to faith is like having a butterfly land on your shoulder. How nice and easy is the way of salvation in Jesus. I remember evangelistic appeals in my childhood where I would hear, all you have to do is trust Jesus and you're going to heaven. And all you need to do is say this prayer and you'll be saved. Now those appeals were both sincere and they weren't entirely wrong. There's truth in both of them. But God says it this way. You must submit to my righteousness in Christ. See, see, it's not an invitation. It's a command. We must submit. To the righteousness of God. This command doesn't come easily to our ears. It tells us that this is deadly serious business. It tells us we're far below the level we thought we were when we began to first think about God. It tells us that God is not just suggesting a good thing to us. The Lord is like a parent who has a toddler who's just run into a pool, fallen in the deep end of the pool. That parent doesn't go over there and coax the toddler out with invitations. That parent goes in and grabs them in a way that's almost violent to pull them out. Now, God is never violative of us, but he is commanding. And it's serious. We must submit to his righteousness, to his way of restoring our righteousness. 
And what is more, God is saying, drop all that effort to save yourself or help me save you in some way. You're only adding to the depth of your sin. R.C. Sproul said it this way. He said, the doctrine of justification by faith alone, we could say tonight the recovery of righteousness by faith alone, is a violent assault upon human pride. Instead of allowing Jesus, Sproul wrote, instead of allowing Jesus to lift them up to himself, Jesus' contemporaries tripped over him. He was their stumbling block. So as I close tonight, I want you to be really clear about one thing. This is not just a temptation to Jewish people. This is a temptation for everyone including card-carrying Presbyterians who sleep with a copy of the Westminster Confession tucked under their pillow. The way of Christ is a violent assault on all our pride as it presents a rock of offense to that pride and self-reliance. But it is the only way to be saved. For Christ Paul says, is the end of the law. He is the goal and purpose of the moral law. He is the way of redemption. He is the culmination of all the covenants in the Bible. We can think about it this way. All human beings are like those passengers in that small submersible the Titan, as it sunk deeper and deeper and deeper into the Atlantic Ocean. And we're all there, as those five passengers were, by our own choosing, our own actions. For sinners, God's holy nature is like the immense weight of the seawater when it presses on something miles down. As I heard it said this week, it is the weight of an Empire State Building if that building were made of lead. Now, thankfully, those five men in that little tube probably had no awareness that they were about to perish before the sub imploded in a millisecond. But what if they had heard that carbon fiber tube groaning right before it collapsed? See, they would have known in that dreadful moment There was nothing they could do to save themselves. That all their choices had only led to their destruction. And like that woman McShane spoke to in Dundee, they would know in that moment that it did not matter who they were. Billionaires or homeless paupers. Jew or Gentile. Black, white, religious or clueless, on the day of judgment, it will not matter. But friends, that humble place of complete helplessness is actually the perfect place to be when it leads to trusting in the sufficiency of Christ. The same righteousness of God that bears down us on us in our sins, in Christ, that righteousness through the gift of faith in Him, serves to lift us up to the surface, back into the sunlight of our sonship, lifts us up into the endless fellowship that we can have with God and with each other, safe forever. 
submitting to the righteousness of God is simply embracing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior with faith. For not the labors of our hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could our zeal no respite know, could our tears forever flow, all for sin could not atone, thou must save, and thou alone. Won't you pray with me? Our Father, we offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to you tonight through our Lord Jesus Christ, the captain of our redemption. How we thank you for your all-sufficient, completely sufficient grace in him. Father, we see in this passage how Paul prayed for the Jews. Though a great providence of election was unfolding, he knew to pray. And so we pray for one another. We pray for our neighborhoods and our city and our nation and our world. Father, we pray that we ourselves as your blessed people in the new covenant would have the highest confidence in your grace. That we would not pretend to assist you in our redemption. May we not be ignorant of your righteousness, O God, for in it is our help. Thank you, Lord, that we come to him tonight, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. And that we ourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to you through Jesus Christ our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.